Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell, alongside our first serving Prime Minister guest on The Rest is Politics. We've had a former Prime Minister, Tony Blair. We've had a hopefully future Prime Minister, Keir Starmer. We've had a former future Prime Minister, William Hague. And now we have you. And one of the reasons we have you is that I'm well aware that you're a regular listener to The Rest is Politics. And you particularly enjoyed the interview with William Hague, which is the one interview which Rory Stewart has managed to secure so far. <laughs> I think it was the the best uh, episode of the, of the series uh, because uh, it's not at all uh, something you can get often nowadays. Uh, so gracious, so insightful, and uh, so humble uh, man coming from so long life in politics. But So what did you see as his insights? It was very insightful about uh, the state of affairs nowadays. It was very insightful about uh, Russia, about China, also very interesting. It was very insightful uh, about the, uh, the inner struggles of someone who is in politics and who has this uh, permanent... Uh, challenge to be in or to get out and when is the time to get out and uh, how much you can stay in and so on and so further. So uh, uh, if I if I would say it all, I'd say although he didn't beat Tony Blair, uh, in the life after politics, he seemed happier than Tony Blair. <laughs> so let's 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 follow up with this prime minister. Um, so you you I mean you you're an extraordinary example of this. You're unusual, very unusual as a politician. You were a very leading uh, artist, serious professional artist, uh, and a serious international basketball player as well as sportsman before you became uh, a politician. Um, how how do you think about politics? How do you know when you've been in long enough? How do you know when you're mind is beginning to become adversely affected? What do you think are the, the strains of being a politician? First of all, I have to, to set the record straight. I was not a serious international basketball player. I was, uh, I was a mediocre national basketball player. And uh, the reason why I played basketball, first of all, was my asthma, uh, because uh, uh, my parents thought that it was, a, it was good for me to play basketball to fight my asthma, which is, which was true. Secondly, the reason why I was uh, taken and, uh, make all the way to the national team was because I was particularly tall in <laughs> that time, particularly short Albania. And, uh, thirdly, uh, yes, I tried to be up to the task, but, uh, I would not uh, at all accept that I was an internationally serious basketball player. Played few bas- bas- uh, international games uh, from the bench, from the bench. Uh, but uh, at the end, was a fantastic experience of uh, understanding 
teamship, understanding leadership, understanding uh, solidarity and uh, and also conflict and so many things that sports uh, gives to you. While me being here today as Prime Minister interviewed by uh, Alistair Campbell is another miracle of life because uh, I would not have been in politics if Alistair Campbell would not exist and if uh, Tony Blair would not exist and if Third Way would not exist and if New Labour would not exist. So uh, the time I saw myself, uh, uh, I had a mirage of myself being uh, in, in uh, somewhere in politics was when I was in Paris uh, buying a newspaper, uh, the aftermath of the victory of the new labor. And, uh, then things happened in a way that, uh, I was, uh, I was back in Tirana to bury my father, living as an artist in Paris. Uh, it was the same day that there was a reshuffle of government. So, uh, what could not happen anywhere else and can happen always in the Balkans is that you go to bury your father and become minister of culture. <laughs> and then uh, the rest uh, is known. Yeah, well, so a, a little bit on that then. So you, your father was a sculptor in what seems to be uh, a sort of socialist realist style. He studied in Moscow, he came back to Albania, and he did kind of big socialist heroic sculptures. sculptures is that right? Very much a product of the Albania of the time. Yes, my father was one of the most uh, prominent uh, official sculptures of the regime. Yeah, he was uh, part of this group of sculptures uh, that uh, basically made the most uh, important monuments. Uh, professionally, absolutely uh, respectful, but uh, ideologically and also in terms of uh, uh, the methods, uh, absolutely something that I was uh, fully against. So with my father, we had a very strong, but also very intense relation in the sense that uh, I didn't like anything uh, he he did uh, and he didn't really want me to do anything I, I, I did because uh, he... He was somehow afraid of uh, me ending up badly. But uh, I value very much this relation because he was a liberal. He was a liberal person. He never tried to impose uh, me doing anything. Yeah, just following up on this a little bit. Um, was he somebody who you think was genuinely, passionately committed to the idea of international communism? Did he genuinely believe in Albania's policies in the 70s in relation to China? Or was he more pragmatic? He understood where power lay. He wanted to make his art. And so he compromised. I mean, when you interacted with him as a young person at the dinner table, was there a lot of ideological conversation? I believe that uh, there were many like him that uh, came from uh, poor or let's say uh, not rich families and had the chance to get out, uh, look the world, be, be in Soviet Union have their studies, uh, be inspired by this, uh, you know, revolutionary flame coming back to build, uh, to build the paradise on earth and then slowly understanding that they were participating in the building on, of the hell on earth. And so, uh, I don't think that he was any more passionate when I could, when I could have, uh, let's say conversations that I could, uh, analyze in a certain age. But I think, uh, it was a very, it was a very strong combination between inertia, 
and uh, an amount of uh, fear, an amount of uh, practicality, because at the end, you know, we were totally isolated from West, from East, we were North Korea of Europe. So uh, many, many of them, uh, people that uh, when they were younger embraced communism as uh, as an inspiration, as an ideal, turned to be uh, practically uh, people that were, you know, that gave up in their own silence. So, but on the other hand, this is, this was part of me being involved in the anti-communist movement in the arts academy, and which was practically the seed of what then became my political career. And, and you didn't really answer Rory's question about whether you think politics has, has changed you and whether, because Rory talks a lot on the podcast about how he felt that his political career almost dehumanized him and dehumanizes a lot of people in, in politics as to whether you think it's changed you fundamentally and also whether you know when you'll be ready to, to leave and move on. You've now won three elections, which is pretty rare in the modern age. Um, I, maybe, maybe, I don't think Rory got in this conclusion while he was still in politics. I think after leaving <laughs> politics, he started to realize that he was somehow handicapped and started to see that something was missing, uh, here, something was missing there for, from the pieces he know he had before entering politics. I don't know. I have to make this check up when I get out. But, uh, I think that, uh, in one way, uh, doing art in the same time uh, helps me uh, to keep some balance, to keep some sanity. And uh, in the same time, yes, politics makes you more and more uh, keen to forget about sentiments and uh, more and more uh, taken by results, results, results. And uh, of course, there is something something a uh, kind of uh, a kind of uh, barbarization of your soul. Uh, I should tell you, Rory, Eddie doodles endlessly while he's in meetings, and his wallpaper is just a collection of his, of his, of his best doodles. <laughs> but but you're quite he's quite, but you're quite quite a serious painter. I, I mean, I, I've been looking at some of your work. Are, are yeah, you, I, are I, you, you're still doing serious painting, or or less than when you listen, were in Paris? I, listen, the most serious part of my paintings uh, and my art is the part that I didn't do it seriously, which uh, is the part that I did. Uh, while I was uh, engaged in politics as Minister of Culture, sitting in the government meetings, uh, I have never entered a government building until becoming Minister of Culture. As an artist, I never wanted to enter a government building or an office or whatever. Never had an office life. And so I couldn't stand the long hours of the Council of Ministers. So I was doodling and doodling and doodling and doodling. <laughs> And my uh, colleague, Minister of Education, was near me, telling me after every session, "Can I take it? Can I take it?" And he took and took and took. And one day I go to visit him, and I, uh, for some other reason, and uh, at the end he says to me, uh, "Do you want to see my art collection?" I said, "Do you have an art collection?" And he has a whole portfolio with my doodles. And when I see them all together, I realize that there was something there. And I go back uh, at uh, my office, very sad, very very down. Uh, the guy was under some charges at the time. And I said to my assistant, I am afraid that I have the proof that he is a thief. He has stolen all my art. And uh, she said, no, you have much more. And she opened her, her shelf. It was full of doodles. I was doing all the time in office without even, even. And then, uh, she conspired with a friend from the academy former friend in the arts academy they brought some doodles uh, in an exhibition and then uh, this started to get 
to get out. <laughs> and then a, a German gallerist uh, came to me to see me because he saw the book I did. Just for our listeners, just so that they can understand what you're talking about. So when you say doodle, people imagine it's like they take their biro pen and they draw a little smiley face in the bottom of their meeting agenda. But your doodles are completely different. Your doodles are, for example, a Google diary sheet, and you will have written some numbers across it. But then over the top is the most extraordinarily complex pieces of art. Uh, incredible numbers of different colors. I mean, there are... I see vegetative forms, birds. Because it's part of hours and hours in office, meetings and meetings. And uh, while I am focused on the on talking with the people that are in front of me or are in the phone, my hand and my eyes continue to do their job to somehow uh, keep me balanced. And uh, that's why they are... And, and their sophistication depends a lot from the length of the time spent in office or from the length of the meeting. So uh, I'm also, Rory, very proud to be I'm on his wallpaper on a horse with a mobile phone in one hand and a sword in the other. It was uh, the, this, this, uh, this, uh, this drawing of Alistair in my wallpaper was premonitory of, uh, of the incursion, the crusade he would make uh, against Boris Johnson, you know, because uh, his iPhone... Uh, and his uh, sword and his horse. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's very know. beautiful. So I, I have a wonderful friend who's a great political supporter who sent me, there's a, a Rembrandt picture that, that maybe you know of a, a young man in a sort of Polish Cossack horse costume riding on a, on a horse through a legendary landscape with a crumbling castle in the background. And he sent this to me also to try to inspire me to ride against Boris Johnson. So maybe there's a there's a cavalry theme coming through. I, I don't. I, so, Eddie, you've raised Boris Johnson, not me. Okay. No, I simply. You I raised simply, Boris Johnson. So just I tell me. When I, every time, because this is this this is Alistair in, on the horse with his sword and his iPhone is in, in front of my eyes many times. And uh, every time I used to see it, I used to just pity Boris uh, to have uh, behind him someone <laughs> so obsessed to kill him as soon as possible. So your assessment now of, let's just go through a couple of current things and then come on to your assessment of where we are as a country and where you are as a country. So first of all, you've had this extraordinary situation with Iran, cyber attack yeah. that you've had to respond to pretty vigorously. We've also got the issue of the spike in Albanians crossing the channel in small boats, which has become a problem for both your government and ours. And then I think also just briefly on what your assessment of Britain in the world is now. We've had, we've had this British week in Albania, lots of good cooperation, but I'd be interested in your take post-Brexit. And finally, your assessment of Albania's place in the world, which, um, you know, you have massive progress, but you've also got big challenges you're still facing. So take us through all of that. So the Iran thing has to do with a heavy cyber attack uh, on us uh, that we worked very, very uh, thoroughly to understand who was behind it. And the attribution is not based on... Uh, assessments that come from, you know, speculation, but is based on a forensic, uh, on proofs and on the hard work of some super special teams that we had with us from Microsoft, from uh, US, uh, even UK uh, experts uh, had to look in it. So we had 100% proof that uh, the 
Republic, uh, Islamic Republic of Iran was behind it. So we had to retaliate with the severance of our diplomatic ties. And why were they doing it? Uh, we think because we, we have sheltered here uh, some thousands of uh, refugees that are not uh, amicable to their regime, to say the least. And we did it uh, in a fully humanitarian basis. They were uh, in Camp Liberty in Iraq. They were massacred and raided every two weeks, every three weeks by the Iranian Secret Service. And kids and women were killed. So uh, we accepted to shelter them. Albania has always been, you know, uh, keen to to give shelter to people, uh, to people in trouble. We have done it during the Second World War. Uh, Albania was the only country to have more Jews after the war than before. And with a clean record of no one Jew, uh, delivered to the Nazis by, by an Albanian uh, family or citizen. Uh, then we, we, we sheltered, uh, half a million, uh, Kosovars, you know, because you were part of that, uh, that, uh, epi- epic, uh, moment. Uh, and then, uh, the Afghans, the Afghans that were, uh, were left behind, uh, in that mess of, uh, Kabul, uh, uh Kabul, uh, airport and, uh, the getting out of the NATO forces, uh, without really having had a plan what we will do for them who, who worked for us there, who stood for us, who believed in us. And I, I, I found this was not good, not right, you know. So we opened the doors for some thousands of Afghans. And, uh, so it's in our, it's in our DNA, let's say. Uh, and we don't regret it. And we'll do it again and again and again because, uh, you know, uh, in the same time, we have been once in need to be sheltered from others. So we left Albania, uh, not from, uh, from an Islamic or a Taliban uh, religious regime, but from an atheist regime. We were thousands with the boats going to Italy to ask for help, for food, for shelter. And uh, we are here today uh, in this new stage of our history because someone helped us before. So the small boats? uh, The small boats uh, is a a sad story, frankly. Although it's an unclear story because uh, there are numbers we see in the British media that uh, do not really match with the numbers we see uh, in our own side. So this increase, uh, there was a very interesting article in The Guardian that uh, was uh, somehow questioning these numbers. But beyond that, we need to know from where these people come in. They are Albanians, yes, but they are Albanians from Albania. Albanians from Kosovo, they are Albanians from other Albanian areas. They are coming from Albania, or they are coming from France, or they are coming from uh, Greece, or from Italy. Uh, we had the same situation with France some some time ago. We had the same situation with Germany some time ago. And when Germany declared the safe origin and uh, simply didn't accept anymore to put the people in an asylum-seeking procedure by giving them funds, uh, social assistance, house, and so on, they moved to France. And now they are moving towards England. So uh, it's very important to, to understand, but... This being said, we, 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 we are cooperating with the British authorities. We are setting some operations to tackle, to tackle the, the, 
the traffickers because the, the, the terrible part of it is that this goes, uh, this is a very lucrative business for traffickers. And, but, what, uh, but do, you, do you have any understanding of why it is suddenly just these numbers have gone up in the way that they have? You never, uh, you, there's always, it's always like a, like a rumor coming out and then some are going and then some relatives there are calling and then, uh, the, no, the, the noise is that uh, in Britain you have now some opportunity because there is a, there is a vacuum created there. We can feel it. So it's, uh, it's like, it's how it works. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. I just wanted to, to sort of shift around for a moment and talk a little bit about perceptions of Albania and the way, Prime Minister, that you're perceived internationally in Britain. So you reprimanded me because I think you heard me talk on the uh, podcast uh, at an earlier session. I was referring to corruption in Albania and organized crime in Albania and all this kind of thing. So you then got in touch, I think, through Alistair to say that I was providing a very negative uh, portrait of the country. But I wanted to see your reflections on this and some, some way because – Obviously, we read media, we go online, we read about Albania, um, and certainly even as a even as a minister, I'm afraid, you know, when we were dealing with the Home Office and the prison system, Albania did not have a very strong reputation on these things. So it would be interesting to know a little bit about what is correct, what is incorrect, and help us navigate ourselves a bit. First of all, uh, you should have known already after so many uh, episodes that when Alistair passed a message, message there is always a spin. I, <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, blame you. Uh, and I never deny that we have uh, problems with corruption. And we have uh, also problems with crime uh, because we are not yet in a stage of a modern 
country that provides for the citizens uh, all the service and all the all the standards that make corruption unnecessary because corruption at the end when uh, it comes to to developing countries is an alternative of uh, the state it's uh, it's a service that is given in a not legal way uh because the state is uh, somehow being late or being uh, lazy or being unable to give the, the service Prime Minister, can, can i can i interrupt for a second sorry this is a historical question but was this a was organized crime and corruption a big issue under communism before 89 or is it something that largely occurred because of the breakdown of that system in 89 no it, during communism we never heard about uh, the word corruption uh, word corruption came with a new vocabulary in my in my in my memory i don't recall to have heard the word corruption uh crime yes there were some you know petty crime but organized crime no because organized crime by definition is uh is uh transnational so uh it has to do with trafficking it has to do with smuggling it has to do with uh, a lot of activities that imply borders imply interactions so we didn't have that but we didn't have many other things during communism uh for example uh albania was uh, i think the country with the lowest heart attacks in the world because lowest our, heart attacks <laughs> yes because our cholesterol was uh, zero because we didn't have too much to eat and we were on vegetables no meat no alcohol no nothing so uh, we were a country uh, with no heart attacks so heart attacks and cholesterol came with democracy this is as, this is uh, this is the britain of the future Roy. As, i think another, uh, another 12 years of the tories corruption this is and organized crime came with democracy so these are part of this path this being said i think we have done incredible incredible work and you know, we have we have achieved incredible results uh in fighting exactly this type of corrupt because corruption uh in uh, in in a in a in a scale of uh of uh, undermining the the law for bigger for big profit is everywhere the problem with the developing countries which which you don't find in developed countries is that corruption touches everyone so it touches you as a citizen when you want a service touches you as a as a father or or a parent when you want your kid to go to the school he or she deserves touches you as a young guy getting out of university when you want to have a job so corruption interferes everywhere and i think we have beaten corruption in many ways uh, in that level the cyber attack was very very uh, heavy heavily damaging because it shut down the digital services we have today 95% of the services that until yesterday were given in long lines implying a lot of uh, bribery in uh, in the in the cloud so in digital so we you don't see anyone you don't need to talk to anyone in your iphone you ask for a license you ask for a permission you ask for your medical status you ask for more than a thousand things and uh, you get them online so th- this means that all this part of corruption is gone for the people but how far where you were when you came in three elections ago where you need to be in these and other issues for example to be considered seriously for entry in the European Union how far along that road do you think you are if we see uh, albania today with the eyes of from where we started is like day 
and night. If we see Albania tomorrow from the eyes where we are, it's night and day. So we need to make uh, a lot, a lot yet, uh, and to it's a long way. And how you had a very, very good relationship with Angela Merkel. Um, has that continued with Schultz? Do you still feel the Germans are very, very supportive? I have to tell you one thing that is uh, is not a joke, it's a real thing. Uh, when I met Schultz uh, in Angela's office and uh, I sat in front of him for some minutes, I was uh, in a very strange state of mind because I was thinking it was she presenting herself as a man in really? front of me. Really? Same, 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 same posture, same place of the hands, same way of looking, same way of reacting, same same pace of the voice. The moment I realized it was not uh, it was not her, but was not, was him, was when he said, "I'm I'm very committed to bring uh, Albania and the Western Balkans in the EU during my mandate." She would never said that, but she was doing it. No, but uh, because it needs time, you know, it it needs a lot of time. And then I said, okay. About how many Mondays you 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 are gonna win to do that? Uh, no, I mean he's a lot of continuity. I think it's totally unfair to criticize him based on the comparison with Angela when she left. And I believe if people try to remember Angela in her first months in office, I'm sure she she and Scholz would be again the same. So uh, she was not. The Angela we know now, she was much more fragile, much more secure, much more, you know. So uh, I think he he has uh, he has all to be to be Angela all the way. Prime Minister, tell us about Angela at her peak. I mean, you're an admirer of her. What, what is it you think made her? Do you think she's the greatest European politician of this decade? Well, maybe in this decade is is very easy to be the best in Europe. Uh, <laughs> uh, competition not not very big. Uh, Yes, I think she saved uh, the honor of Europe and the honor of our civilization uh, the moment she stood very strong in front of the huge wave of refugees uh, in 2015. This was amazing against all polls, against all public opinions, against all the fears and the unknown. She stood and uh, this was an incredible uh, moment of uh, of feeling the privilege to know her. And then I think, yes, she was, uh, she was great uh, in the sense that she never uh, spoke wishful thinking. She always uh, prepared herself. She always stick to the facts. She always tried to be truthful. She never, uh, and, uh, you know, I think Angela Merkel uh, was someone you could not charm. She- You couldn't charm her. You couldn't charm she was someone that didn't need and uh, didn't feel the need to be charmed. You know, she was very gentle, very kind, but being uncharmable is the highest uh, level of the respect and of self-awareness and the dignity. I think it's, it's, it's amazing. She was, she was not some, someone you could charm. So the four points, the four questions I laid out earlier, you dealt with three of them, but not Britain. So you mentioned there of those qualities you've just outlined for Angela Merkel, how many of them would apply to our recently departed prime minister? He wants me. He wants to bring me the horse. You know, <laughs> you know this. <laughs> you, you, you're talking about paintings. Uh, you know, there is another famous painting. You know, with this, uh, with a death, with a young uh, lady in the horse. 
So Alistair now wants me to be the young lady that uh, <laughs> with the innocent face of of a poor Albanian uh, prime minister tells how horrible Boris Johnson was. But I'm not going to get in your trap. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 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 the so the answer is you wouldn't say any of those things about him that you said about Angela. Otherwise, you'd have said them. <laughs> Tell us about recent French leaders compared to recent German leaders. How do you think they rate compared to German leaders in in their conduct in the last decade? I think I think uh, Emmanuel Macron has another problem. Uh, people, especially in France. They really don't know who he really is. Uh, and uh, it's a pity that he cannot transmit when uh, he's in public how, how interesting he is, how human he is, how, how much respectful he is of, uh, of uh, people, how, how curious he is to listen. It's, it's really incredible, you know, to have the president of France uh, write text you out of the blue and say, how you see things? Tell me, what do you think? Like this, so it means that he's uh, someone uh, absolutely uh, a lot, maybe not f- absolute, but a lot different from what the French think that he's an arrogant boy that he doesn't really feel uh, people, he doesn't really uh, care about uh, anything else than the rich. It's not true at all, you know. Uh, he's someone with a vision, with ambition, uh, you know, but. I don't know what's what's missing that uh, doesn't make the right connection with people. You, you, as you, you mentioned that Tony Blair's government's role in relation to Kosovo, and we've talked before, and I've been always very interested by your assessment of Kosovo in terms of where the Balkans was then and where it is now, but also your view that Putin looks on Kosovo. Putin repeats uh, repeats the word Kosovo many times, especially. Uh, since the war started, he speaks uh, about Kosovo many times because, uh, in his mind, uh, in his idea of the of the international law, uh, Kosovo is uh, the mirror where every one who participated in its liberation should see his own hypocrisy while talking about Crimea. In his mind, uh, Kosovo. Uh, is uh, the biggest example of how the Western world, uh, America and uh, its allies, broke brutally international law. And uh, Crimea, in his mind, is uh, the detector of this big hypocrisy. And, and more than Iraq, you feel, in his mind? For Iraq, he has, uh, he has of course, the conviction that was in breach of international law. But uh, when it comes to Kosovo, it's much, it's much more, it's much more, uh, to him, uh, a twin case of, uh, Crimea. So a land that, uh, was taken from one state in the name of uh, the people living there while, uh, Crimea is a land, uh, taken back to, uh, the state where it belongs in the name of people living there. So, uh, and, 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 and Prime Minister, just on that one, for our listeners, particularly American, uh, British listeners, the situation in the Western Balkans is something that people talk about, but there's very, very little covered. Is it something that people should be anxious about? Is it people that, that policymakers in Washington and London should be focused more on? Uh, in this, in this moment, I'm less, I'm less preoccupied. I was very preoccupied in the beginning because Western Balkans, uh, first of all, I think, uh, that, uh, European Union, 
is the only geographical reality in the history of the maps with one outside border and one inside border. And within this inside border is the Western Balkans. So you cannot enter the Western Balkans without entering EU. And you have to enter EU and to get out of EU to be in the Western Balkans. And you cannot get out of the Western Balkans without re-entering EU. So it's like, uh, it's like having a stomach within your body, but, uh, but uh, somehow, uh, somehow uh, circumscripted with the border. And, and Prime Minister, sorry, I'm, Prime Minister, I'm being, going to be just interrupt for a second for our listeners, just to remind them that we're talking here about some of the tensions in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Northern Macedonia, Montenegro, Kosovo. Now, within this, uh, these uh, borders, we, within EU, uh, Russia has uh, its uh, most, uh, its most uh, obvious influence from Republika Srpska in Bosnia to Serbia itself to uh, Montenegro, partly, and to North Macedonia. So, uh, let's say, in this uh, Slav Orthodox world, uh, there is a lot of Russian influence. And uh, to give you an example, uh, in Albania, Vladimir Putin's popularity is uh, 0.7%. So, 0.7% right. <laughs> of Albanians think that Putin is right. 99.3% think that Putin is wrong. Uh, while in Serbia, 80% of Serbs think that Putin is a hero showing his balls to the West. Uh, and uh, I was preoccupied because, put, of course, Putin tried to use its influence to disrupt here in the Western Balkans. And this could happen in a certain way easy if the West would push Serbia beyond a certain limit to sanction Russia. Serbia cannot sanction Russia because physically is impossible. They cannot leave a day without the Russian gas. Uh, secondly, uh, because of public opinion. So uh, asking from Serbia too much, too fast, would, could have been disastrous for the Western Balkan because this would, right. this would disrupt a process we have started in in the Western Balkan of uh, rapprochement, collaboration. Um, building peace, uh, open Balkan initiative and all this. Serbia uh, made a long way on the other side because uh, it was a huge surprise. They voted three times against Russia in the United Nations, uh, even yes. to expel Russia from the Human Rights Committee. So yep. as far as this sanction thing will not be, uh, will not be so pressuring to break it, uh, I'm not uh, much preoccupied. Are you happy about being within the context, again, of getting to the European Union, that you and Serbia, in a sense, have to develop in different ways, but at the same time. And is your relationship with it's Serbia not, good? It's not a matter of being happy. It's a matter of uh, uh, finally having understood that uh, you don't pick your neighbors and uh, your neighbors are there to stay. So uh, uh, the choice is very, very clear. Or you look for trouble and troubles will uh, hit you and will make your life more difficult or you look for peace and cooperation. So uh, working in this second direction, uh, we can see much more benefits for the future and we can build the peace we need. Uh, while the first direction has uh, taught us for hundreds of years that the end is, uh, is, is cruelly unjust for, for the next generations. We've talked about Russia and the Western Balkans in your area, but of course, people will also talk about China and Hungary. And I'd be very interested to see 
whether there is, you know, often if you were reading an article in New York Times, if you talked about Western Balkans, you would put Russia, China, and Hungary together as potentially anti-Western forces operating the Western Balkans. Listen, because of our history uh, in Albania, we have a very particular uh, situation. In our history, we uh, had Stalin here standing in the main square until 1990. So uh, our, our uh, guys thought that Khrushchev was too soft, that the Soviet Union uh, empire was a bunch of traitors, that they uh, abandoned Stalin, and with that they gave up the cause. So they left the Soviet bloc, they left the Warsaw Treaty, and they went to China. And they went to China, China and we got with Stalin also the words of China, the Cultural Revolution uh, of the 60s. So uh, this made Albania a place where no Russia and either China are really uh, seen like uh, the saviors, uh, like uh, what we desperately need. And practically, we we are a country that is 100% renewables. We we are based, uh, our, our electricity is fully based on hydro production. So we don't have Russian gas. We don't have Russia here in any shape or form, only with an embassy, that uh, has removed lately because we named the road of the embassy Free Ukraine and uh, <laughs> their envelopes were coming uh, Russian embassy for Ukraine, Russian embassy for Ukraine. So now they moved in another place and uh, I heard from the mayor that he wants to move the name to that place. Let's see what will, what will happen. Uh, China is, uh, is, uh, is also not very present in Albania. We have a normal relation, but uh, not that much. But beyond that, I have to bring an, the attention on one point. Uh, in Europe, they speak more and more about geopolitics. Uh, they speak more and more about Western, Western Balkans. They speak more and more about not letting what they call third actors to fill the void. And guess what? There, the pandemic comes. Uh, they are all uh, in their uh, in their moment of uncertainty, chaos, and uh, they gather and they distribute vaccines within the EU countries, and no one those comes to us. So we are, as I said, in the middle of Europe, and we are connected to the European life in all ways, with people living in Europe, with TVs from Europe, and we felt like uh, fishes out of water. And what ha- what we did, we ran to Turkey to China and to Russia. And it was Turkey uh, that provided vaccine for Albanians. It was China that provided vaccines for Serbia and uh, other parts. It was Russia that provided some to some others. So uh, without these three uh, these three heads uh, of the devil, let's say, would not have survived. Mm. So uh, now... So the, Europe, the European Union, you, you would argue, made a mistake. The European Union made a shameful mistake. And then they started to bring vaccines. Now, and I said to them uh, when we were back in the council, uh, don't do it again with the energy crisis. If you have a package to support the countries of the European Union with extra money to mitigate the huge cost of the energy, don't let the Balkans out because it will be another another example of uh, saying something and meaning something else and doing something completely different. Mm. So you still desperately want to get into the European Union. What is your assessment of Britain's role in the world? Listen, we 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 have uh, it's, it's it's the first time in in our history that we have chosen 
with our free will where, where we want to be. Uh, for centuries, we have been where we didn't choose and where we were not asked under different regimes, uh, in a, in a different places, but never where we belong, which is, uh, let's say the Western civilization. And, uh, in 1990, when the anti-regime movement, uh, succeeded, the slogan was, we want Albania like Europe. So being in Europe is for us to be in a safe place and to be in a place where people count, not where, uh, others decide for you. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's embarrassing to, to, to be, to, to have to answer the question, Britain is leaving, you are entering. And it feels a bit like, uh, uh, you know, divorcing and telling to a young man in love, don't marry. It doesn't work. You know, everyone has to go through the marriage <laughs> to realize that maybe it's not so, so amazing. Uh, so divorcing has never stopped others to marry. And, and some, and some marriages work. There are even cases when second marriages work. Uh, so <laughs> maybe Britain will come back one day to remarry with Europe. Uh, it looks like impossible today, but uh, maybe one day they'll rethink of it because, you know, uh, being alone, surrounded by water, it's not always so, <laughs> so, so amusing. Prime Minister, I had, um, a, 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 I'm, I've been fascinated by this visual image you've given us, which is this Northern Renaissance painting by Hans Baldung called The Night, Death and the Maiden. And for the, for the readers who are, uh, listeners who are not, haven't seen the painting, essentially it's a knight on a horse. It's the second maiden time in a row he's talked about our readers, right? Rory, <laughs> just podcast, listen, <laughs> books, read. Okay. <laughs> I need to get this straight in my head. Okay. So we, we have a picture. Uh, early 16th century, we have a knight on a horse, we have a maiden grabbing onto the knight, and then we have death with his teeth grabbing onto the skirt of the maiden's uh, the maiden's skirt. And you were you were expressing yourself as seizing like the maiden onto Alistair Campbell the knight as he rides away with death trying to chew onto your onto your skirt. I wondered what direction you you think you and Alistair can ride in the future, if not against Boris Johnson. What would be an exciting direction for the two of you to go on your horse? <laughs> Are you doing a full term? I know it's uh, it's uh, it's all to be seen, and uh, and the great thing with Alistair, which uh, I think it's shown also by this podcast, is that uh, he's very successful in things uh, that he, even him does not expect before. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure that he'll find something else to to do when it comes to do something together. And uh, I'll be very pleased to, to embark with him in his horse. Uh, but please not to kill another conservative prime minister. This, uh, he, can, this he, he can do with his own, not with me. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for your time. Thank you. I didn't realize that that is what got you into politics. I've never heard you say that before, but that was... The whole new Labour thing, third way. Yeah, the, the, this was uh, the most, this was the biggest inspiration. Uh, it was like a mirage. I didn't decide at that moment, but I envied, uh, Tony Blair. I envied this, uh, this, uh, young new politician coming and breaking, uh, breaking the old house with this completely new spirit and, uh, uh, this wave of change and this rock star, you know, uh, type, uh, of, uh, of communication and all this. And then I started to follow and follow and follow all the way, 
And uh, practically, uh, the first thing I did when I became leader of the party, I I started uh, the third way, the third way thing, and uh, the one man one uh, vote uh, process, and uh, many more. And I'm and, and I'm happy to see uh, that third way still works for them who are not afraid of it, and uh, especially for them who. Uh, are not uh, in denial of it. Uh, it has been so big pain to see uh, the Labour Party uh, going in a very incomprehensible denial of uh, what the achievements were uh, for, of, of the new Labour. And uh, I hope now it's, uh, it's the moment that they can recover. Well, thank you so much, Prime Minister. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Alistair. It was an honour to be, to be in this uh, Wonderful. The country's chart-topping podcast. It is a wonderful version of the House of Commons. If the House of Commons <laughs> was like your podcast, I'm sure people would be enchanted again of politics. Maybe. Would you like to say a final word to the supporters of Burnley Football Club, your English team? Burnley Football Club. Yeah. I, I was so, I was so shocked <laughs> when Alistair we are do, said to me yesterday, we are doing well. We are fourth or fifth in the championship. I said, <laughs> I said, how, how the bar can be so low? I, I, I don't understand, but. Uh, <laughs> You're right. That, that biggest cut. We don't ever insult Burnley Football Club on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Bye, Yuri. Thank you. So, Rory, what do you think of that? Well, firstly, thank you. I mean, I thought that was really, really fun to, to meet the Prime Minister of Albania, get a sense of his history and stuff. Um, I, I guess it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Um, interviewing somebody from a completely different country because I'll be very aware that opposition politicians in Albania will be very disappointed that we were not tougher mm-hmm. and harder. And I'm vaguely aware in the back of my mind that there are still massive issues around organized crime and corruption. And I don't know how to push that. And we're trying to get the balance right between being polite and respectful. And I don't really know enough. I mean, I did think, though, he is a great, great charmer. I thought he he's incredibly articulate. He's got a lovely manner. He's very learned. And I can see why you like him so much. Look, we could have sort of run him ragged over Albania dominating the cocaine market in the UK and whether they've been tough enough in the past. And we could have done that. But the thing is, I also know, because I also don't forget, I've seen him being interviewed a lot. He's He's... And he has followed the Tony Blair rule book in many, many ways. And one of them, he's very good at doing interviews where he's, where people are trying to put him on the defensive. And I just think that if you've got time to, I think for our listeners who won't know, many of whom won't know that much about Albania, although we do apparently have 2,200 moderately regular listeners to the podcast in Albania, I should tell you, Roy. Um, but I think that they will be interested in, you know, I, I, when I t- was talking to somebody the other day and said, you know, I, I've been coming to Albania on and off for over a decade, ever since before Eddie became prime minister, and, and literally said, I don't know anything. He said, I don't know anything about Albania. And like, you know, when it, so when you say things like, you know, Enver Hoxha or, you know, uh, then when you mention Dua Lipa and Rita Ora and you say there's a kind of Albanian connection, then suddenly they're, they're sort of vaguely interested. So I think what he was talking and putting it in that context of geopolitics as well, that's what, that's what I like talking to about. I think he's got a very good geopolitical mind. Um, and also he is, it's, you know, he said the point right at the end about, about how sad he has found it to see the Labour Party, particularly under, you know, after Gordon went, Ed Miliband, and then particularly under Jeremy Corbyn, to see it sort of move away 
from the political values and sorts of policies that inspired him to go into politics. And, you know, we have done three campaigns together now and we've, we've used a lot of the new Labour principles and he's, you know, he's won all three. To, to get it done, yeah. I mean, I've also, I'm fascinated, but it's so difficult, isn't it, with serving politicians to get honest answers to problems. So one of the things I'd be interested in, I'm very interested in countries with a lot of corruption, organized crime, is how dangerous is it to be a prime minister or a minister? I mean, how much freedom have you got? To, are you actually in a situation where if you really alienate these people, they come along and kill you? I mean, I remember talking to a Jamaican politician who was leaving Jamaican politics because he quite literally said he was going to be murdered if he continued. Mm, mm. I had dinner with Eddie in a restaurant uh, last night and I must admit the, the number of police cars and security that were around the place seems to have gone up since when he took office. I don't know what that's about, but um, yeah, I, th- I think that you, 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 I guess that is, does have to be sort of part of it. But I, 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 I do think that, that he understands the importance of Albania's image in the world. Um, and I think has made efforts to to tackle that. And uh, look, we, I'm with Dom, the producer of the podcast, who's been the last couple of days, the first time in Tirana, and I think has been absolutely gobsmacked by what Tirana looks like and feels like and how vibrant and buzzy and clean and, and all the rest of it. He's nodding. My friend Emma's just been on holiday, just thinks it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, and they're, they're, I mean, he's doing very, very well on the PR. I mean, if you... My favorite journal, the New York Times, if you go through their stuff in Albania, there's lots of stuff about, you know, a largely unexplored corner of Europe with 265 miles of coastline, high-end waterside resorts, and lovely stuff about how Tirana is becoming a creative haven for artists. Well, tourism is going really well in, in Tirana. And listen, I recommend Albania for holidays to, regularly to people, particularly young people who are maybe looking for, you know, not to get broke on the back of a good holiday. And honestly, they, I've yet to have anyone come back other than absolutely, totally impressed. And I've been here dozens of times now, and I always enjoy it. And I don't think he hides the problems. Uh, but I do think there's, they've also got a problem, you know, clearly this is what we're referring to in the boats, is that there are still young people who want to leave. And uh, that, that is because some of these economic and social challenges. It's still a, a very, very poor country comparatively. I mean, if you compare it yeah. to a country like Germany. And yeah. Again, I mean, I, I, I know very little, but I, I was based in Montenegro for a year, so I had a bit of a sense of Albania across the border, but still very, very traditional cultural practices and villages. And no, just, just on the, you, you mentioned Germany there. We had lunch with somebody today who's telling us that they're really having a bit of a problem in terms of nurse recruitment at the moment because the German government was having a big nursing drive and were able to offer kind of four times the salary for a nurse to go to work in, in Germany rather than Albania. So that, that, that is a, that's a big issue. I don't know whether this is true in Albania, but I, at recent trips to Romania, for example, I've been through villages where there are basically no men to be seen. All the young men are working in Germany mm. and there are women working in the fields. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting, the demographic impacts of the kind of huge draw of Northern Europe right the way. Mm. Down through well, Romania, I, I wonder whether on the boats, I mean, I don't know this and I've not, I've not seen the data, but I do wonder whether part of the increased appeal at the moment uh, that is driving, it seems to be driving the numbers up, is the, po- the, the knowledge of post-Brexit labour shortages. And that there's, yeah. there's a, they know that there, are, there is a massive labour market there if they can only get into it. 100%. Well, to be discussed in the next podcast, but kudos to you. And, and we, um, I thought that was really interesting. And I, I now need to deliver... Uh, another world leader for you who is as interesting and as open and as charming.
I don't mean to worry, Roy, but I've got another one lined up who's just said yes. So there you go. It's the pretty tough, on, and, and, it's and pretty he's tough. left wing as well. So you've got to get. But he did like he did like William Hague, so that's good. So do make sure William Hague listens to it. I definitely will. All right. Lots of love, Alistair. Bye bye. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Bye.